the business plan is actually the enemy of innovation and the enemy of entrepreneurship because what business plans are good for is to plan and execute so they're not per se bad they're just a disaster in innovation and they're a disaster in entrepreneurship this episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast, I am once again joined by my favorite partner in crime, Professor Dries Foms, to welcome a guest whose work I've been a fan of for many years. Alex Osterwalder is a Swiss-born entrepreneur, founder of Strategizer, visiting professor at IMB Business School, author, public speaker, and one of the big brains behind the famed Business Model Canvas, who I'm sure of uh, many of you are likely familiar with. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Alex, welcome. Great to have you here, finally. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So we like to start our episodes off the same way with all of our guests with a little bout of storytelling. Um, some people start at their childhood. Some people start a few years ago. Completely, completely up to you where you want to begin, but maybe you could kick things off by kind of telling us uh, where you come from and how you ended up where you are today. So I am uh, born in Switzerland in the Swiss German part. I actually now live in the French speaking part and uh, just very quick background. I'm you know, married and have two children. Now, to go back to where I landed today professionally, I just always like creating stuff. And I was always into visual. Like I used to like to draw and all of that. I like, I like computers when they, you know, <laughs> I'm going to date myself if I talk about the first visual IBM computers and stuff. I, I had one in my room. My father was a manager. He got a computer. He didn't know what to do with it. So he put it in the room of his son, right? So <laughs> that kind of is, is mixes things together. You know, how did I end up thinking business models? It actually comes from that kind of early, in the early days. So then make a big jump, because I'm not going to talk about the whole boring part in between. <laughs> big jump to, I worked with uh, Yves Pinier, professor at the uh, University of Lausanne, um, business uh, information systems. He was working on business models. He was looking for a PhD student. Well, I showed up because he was my favorite professor. And his idea was like, we could probably make a computer-aided design tool for business. Just like architects, they make, you know, they have this visual tool to come up with buildings. Why can't we do that for business? And not processes, right? So process management was already a thing there, but for business models, like the core business logic. So the question was, well, you know, how do you do that? You first need some kind of model to come up with that. So I did my PhD with Eve and we became great friends, worked together now for over two decades. And that then took off. So people started downloading my PhD. Like, who does that? PhDs <laughs> are written to get a title, not necessarily to be read. I didn't know that. So that's how the whole thing started. And the business model canvas literally came out of my PhD. It's, you know, kind of the, the top layer that when later on I was, uh, you know, um, building a consulting firm with a friend, Stefano Mastro Giacomo, we put that on the wall, started filling it out and said, hey, this is a tool. So I knew the concept worked, but I didn't know it was a business tool. So that's how the whole thing started. And from there, you know, I continued to work on visual business tools, visual strategic business tools, but also then embedding that into um, computer technology. So today with Strategizer, we build kind of a, a system, the innovation infrastructure, so people can do this, not just on paper with sticky notes or in visual whiteboarding tools, but have a real computer-aided design system to innovate. Amazing. Yeah, and I think today we, we actually want to talk with you about this kind of tools. And, and um, actually, 
in my teaching at WAU, I, I heavily rely on your insights with respect to hypothesis development and hypothesis testing, because you had a great video about that on your strategizer website. So I would like to take the opportunity today to dig a deep deeper in, into kind of the concepts and the tools that you have around that topic. But maybe before we delve into the, the kind of hardcore stuff, can you maybe explain for our audience what you mean with the word hypothesis in the context of a startup, what does that mean? Yeah, so look, when you have an idea, you think the idea is everything. But actually, you know what? I'm actually going to draw this. So let me kind of have some fun drawing stuff, right? What do I mean with hypothesis? So let's say you're a founder, you know, you start with this idea, which could be a technology market opportunity, the way anyways to start, right? And your goal is to kind of build a real business, right? And you need to go from here to here. So traditionally, what did we teach in business schools and even on you know, engineering schools? We taught how to write a business plan. And then you had this curve going up like this, right? Yeah. And the reality is the business plan is actually the enemy of innovation and the enemy of entrepreneurship. Because what business plans are good for is to plan and execute. So they're not per se bad. They're just a disaster in innovation and they're a disaster in entrepreneurship. So the journey in entrepreneurship and innovation is more like this, right? You advance, you regress, and then if you make it over here and a lot of ideas rest in peace, right? Yeah. Well, how do you manage that? Definitely not with a business plan because you're not going to invest in a spreadsheet and in a beautiful PowerPoint deck. That is less and less the case. So what do people do today? Because you do need to replace that, right? You can't just say, oh, here's some money, go and do stuff. So what do we replace that with? Very simple. We draw out our idea in the business model canvas. So we take this, shape it. We make maybe a value proposition canvas. And this should take maximum, probably like two to three hours. It could be even faster. Mm -hmm. So you didn't spend a lot of time on making a business plan you roughly sketch out your business design, your idea for how you're going to create value for customers and your business model in the shortest amount possible. Because here's the thing, you need to accept as an entrepreneur, you're very likely to be wrong. Now, here's where we're going to get to hypothesis. So when you have an idea, you actually need to, uh, you need to admit that uncertainty and risk that your idea is something silly, that's not gonna work how you imagined it. You need to just admit that you're probably wrong. You could be very wrong if you're doing something substantially you know, different, and you could be pretty wrong if you're kind of doing a better you know, mousetrap or so. So your task as an entrepreneur and innovator is very simple. You only have one task. It's not to dole out business cards, it's not to raise money. We always think entrepreneurs, they raise money. Well, maybe, and eventually, probably, but that's not your main task. Your main task is to make sure you're not going to build something nobody wants. That's your main task. So what do you do? You de-risk. You de-risk by experimenting. And, you know, Steve Blank and Eric Ries, you know, kicked this off, this whole movement from Silicon Valley. And Eric Ries called it Lean Startup and said, well, you need to build, measure, learn. But he didn't actually literally mean build, measure, learn. He even has an article out there from the old days where he says, well, before you build, you need to ask, what do you need to learn? So the number one question that you need to have as an entrepreneur, so you need to de-risk, right? You need to reduce the risk. So you don't build something nobody wants. So the number one question is, is what do we need to learn before we build any experiment? And it's generally, it's not a physical thing that you build, not even a digital thing. So that means you shaped your idea and now you ask, what do I need to learn? What needs to be true for this idea to work? So you're going to come up with all these hypotheses around this business idea. Oh, customers need to have to have that challenge. They need to be willing to pay, you know, 12 bucks for this subscription. Everything that needs to be true for your idea to work is a hypothesis. Mm. So that's what you're going to test. And you can't test all the hypotheses. So you're going to ask, what's the most important hypothesis to test? What's the biggest risk? And it's rarely, can I build it? It's generally, should I build it? Which goes towards desirability. Do customers have that problem? Do they have that objective? 
and then viability very quickly. So hypothesis is the first thing you do to formulate what you need to learn. And since hypothesis is a bit of a complicated and maybe academic word, just frame it like this. What do I need to learn to test before I experiment? What do I need to learn? I need to learn that customers have this challenge. How could I test this? Well, let me talk to 20 and see if they have this challenge. Okay, now I know that they have this challenge. Well, what's the next thing I can do? So hypothesis simply is a tool to structure what you need to learn. And, yeah, and I, I think you already, said, yeah, you, you already said something very important, namely, in your opinion, at least, the most important thing is to test hypothesis related to desirability and maybe technological feasibility. It's not that it's not that prior, it's not really okay, priority in testing. Can can you maybe explain a bit more why that is the case? Because yes. I experience with my students that, that they feel that as counterintuitive. They they always yes. think like, oh, yes. we first need to test that it works, and then yes. we can do the other things. 100%. And that's your students. I can tell you, I work with executives. Of course, they pursue <laughs> Well, I can't, you know, if it doesn't work, I can't put it out there. Well, that's the point. You don't even want to, you know, try to figure out if it works because any time spent on something that nobody cares about is useless. So when you look at this, right, you start with maximum risk. So your, your goal is actually to figure out if you should even continue with this project. So as fast as possible, you're going to go towards either killing this project or continuing. So when risk is high, you need to go with the fastest experiment and the cheapest experiment to learn if you should even continue another day or another week. And building something is the most expensive experiment. So even if we call it, you know, minimum viable product, right? The, 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 the key word that people always use, you never start with the minimum viable product because building something is already a, a risk because you're going to spend you know, at, at five days a week or so, if you can't build it in five minutes, ask first, you know, should you build it? So you always start with the fastest and cheapest experiments and the fastest, cheapest experiments to figure out if customers have that challenge. Because if they don't, don't spend another minute on that idea, either shift the idea, the customer segment. So with building, you're not going to learn that. So that's why people, you know, when they say, oh, we do MVPs, and they say, that's the first thing we do. I said, well, then you really didn't get, understand what, what uh, customer development and lean startup is about. No. So you need to ask, what's the most important thing I need to learn? And is rarely, can I build it? Because by part, you know how you prioritize, you ask, if that's not true, everything else doesn't matter. So if you can't build it, customers might still have that problem, right? So you might build it in a different way, but that's too expensive. So don't waste your time on expensive stuff before you have evidence that you should do that. Don't even try. And that's what people misunderstand a lot. Obviously, engineering students, they want to build stuff. Scientists, they want to, you know, create a new molecule or something. That's the most expensive thing. And even if you do kind of orient your building and your scientific research, I work a lot with pharma, it's always better when it's informed by real customer evidence. So before you build anything, show me you know the customer based on evidence. I wanna get a little deeper into this topic because I think it's one that a lot of, uh, you know, nascent entrepreneurs and inexperienced entrepreneurs have, have struggles with. You know, I, I always think of, the lean startup, you know, very much like the scientific method, right? Except the primary difference between the laws of physics or the laws of chemistry and human behavior and human reaction are profoundly different. You know, so when you're testing a hypothesis with people, there's yeah. a, a lot murkier space to understand yes. if yes. you're if you're getting a valid, valid yes. test. Like what do you tell people? What signals to look for to confirm or invalidate a hypothesis? And how deep can you, do you need to go? Yeah, I think there's this, there's this myth that when you test, all of a sudden the lights are going to go on and you'll see the truth. Like, unfortunately, that's not how entrepreneurship works. You'll also always have contradicting data, right? You'll have some customers, they'll say this, other customers will say that. So the goal is to detect patterns in the data. 
And here's the key thing, the most important thing that a lot of people get wrong. There's not one experiment that's going to show you the truth. The best teams and entrepreneurs, they run 10, 20 different experiments. And by the massive evidence that they're looking at, they're actually, you know, starting to see that evidence. And of course, it's not about, you know, you can get lost in experimentation. You gradually learn more. So if you first focus on customer jobs, pains, and gains, you're going to do three, four, five experiments around customers. You do interviews, you can do surveys, you can do landing pages, very quick stuff. And then all of a sudden, in that mass of data, you're going to see things emerge, right? That's the key that to, to, to the secret here is you don't think that one experiment is going to give you the light. It's running several experiments that's going to give you patterns. And if you start with light, we, we actually have a way to really rigorously measure risk and, risk and uncertainty. The first evidence, lightest evidence, is people tell you, yeah, I have that problem. I like that idea. That's very light. They told you so, but, you know, telling me doesn't mean they're going to behave like that. So stronger evidence is if you get them to do something, so-called call to actions. So that's, you know, signing up with an email, very light call to action. Didn't cost them a lot, but they won't do it if they don't care. But now if you get them to make a down payment, like Tesla did, you know, with their very first kind of Tesla Roadster and then with the Model 3, that's real evidence. They made a down payment. You don't put money down on the table when you don't care. So with the, with the mass of different types of evidence and strong evidence, you're going to get more and more confident. So rather than seeing it like scientific, it's true or false. That's why I'd never use the word validated or I tried not to use it because it's wrong. You can say this supports my assumptions and hypothesis, or it doesn't support. But then it's different sources of evidence, different experiments that will give me that pattern. And it's really more about evidence-based decisions you know, that inform you. There's always this mix between, Steve Blank calls it, you know, the art and science of entrepreneurship. It's not scientific because there's no absolute truth. It's not art because you are actually trying to figure out some patterns. So it's this navigation between the creative part and the more scientific part. And that's what's hard is pure scientists will get lost. You know, pure kind of dreamers and creatives will get lost. It's the ability to combine this art and science and seeing those patterns from your experiments. Awesome. I, I want to go one step deeper on this. Um, you know, I built an enterprise SaaS company. And um, certain customers are harder to engage than others, right? Um, you're not going to get to the C-suite of a Fortune 50 company without something in hand, you know? So I felt in that particular venture, I was dealing with a lot more assumptions than I was if I was building a consumer-facing app. What is your advice for people that may not have access to the same data points that they would ideally want to have? I'd say get creative, right? That's the kind of, what, what really good entrepreneurs and successful entrepreneurs are, are good at is they're creative in how they get access. Like, it's never going to be served to you on a platter. People tell me, yeah, but Alex, it's easy for you to generate traffic. Well, guess what? I didn't start with, you know, you know, so many people. I started with zero. Guess what? I got creative. So if we're talking about access to CEOs, well, figure out a way to get in the room. But before you get into the room to speak to them, make sure you did your homework. Talk to people who work with the CEO. That is a proxy is generally a very good way to understand, you know, those harder targets. Sometimes it's even better because you'll get the truth and not what the person tells you, right? Talk to the assistant of the CEO. They will take the time. Now, talking to the CEO, maybe not. And then once you understand, you can almost sometimes formulate as, a, an, ex, as an experiment. Let me figure out by talking to 10 personal assistants of CEOs, where is the, the gate, you know, the gate and how can I get in? So even there, you be creative and you're going to test how to get access. That's what entrepreneurs do. Entrepreneurs they see opportunities, not challenges. And they will be kicked in the face a hundred times. You know how many times you get slammed in the face when you want to talk to, to a CEO? That's okay. That's part of the job. So be creative and find different paths. So even accessing that customer requires experimentation. You see what I mean? 
Yep. Maybe can I briefly follow up because I think this is one of the biggest comments I get when I teach this kind of tools to my students, both MBA, bachelor, most students. They always tell me, yeah, what you propose at doing these kind of quick experiments, trying to get quick feedback from customers, that might work in a B2C environment, but in a B2B environment, it's impossible. <laughs> That's what I'm always getting. And then it's always like, yeah, how should we do this in a B2B environment? <laughs> So I actually violently disagree. It's already kind of hard to, to generalize, right? So in some yeah. B2C arenas, it's hard and some it's easy and the same in B2B. Like if you're working with the defense department, of course, it's going to be hard, right? <laughs> but so you kind of need to, you can't generalize. But no. if you take B2B, um, you know, in the traditional sense, big accounts, you know, um, you have few people, you have a buying committee. I actually almost think it's easier because yeah. enterprises can be, again, depends a bit on the topic you're working on, can be more homogenous than B2C out there. So I'd be careful to say B2C is easier. B2C, it's easier maybe to get access to a couple of people. But you know, if you're in the mass market, you talk to 10, well, maybe you talk to exactly the 10 that are yeah. not representative. So I personally, I am in B2B, so this is not an opinion. I think it's easier to get access and to learn. And B2B, you're generally really focusing on a functional job. Functional jobs, people know exactly what they want. Here's what I need. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's the quality. That's an easier interview than when you're trying to, you know, create. Imagine when, when Steve Jobs and the team was creating the iPod. Like that's so much harder. Did it, was it pure, just kind of, you know, genius? No, they are very good at understanding customers. Understanding customers for mass market is much harder. Can you get access to people? Yes. But then from there to, you know, million customers, I work with, I work with clients who tell me, okay, the yardstick is this idea needs to be, you know, for, for at least a billion people. Uh, okay. That's going to be hard to test. Right. So, so I think there's this myth that B2C is easier I'm not sure, right? So access, yes, but is that going to be representative? So I'm a big fan of B2B because you get you, you know what you're working with and you know how to access these people. In the end, you're having you may have less data points, but you're having higher resolution, higher quality data with a smaller sample Love size. Yeah. Love the framing you got there. Absolutely. It's exactly that. You should actually give the answers because you're <laughs> synthesizing it so well. I, I've, I've felt the pain of that problem myself. So I learned it the, through uh, bumps and bruises. Yeah, maybe another well, right? thing. Evan yeah, well, by, the, by the way, I think that's the key thing also when we're talking about education. You know, entrepreneurship education is like going to medical school. You have business anatomy and physiology. That's about, you know, books behind me plus, you know, Steve Blank, Eric Reese. You need to learn the theory. You can't do without, but at the same time, you don't like become a doctor or a surgeon, an entrepreneurship surgeon by just reading books, right? So there's so much of that learning. And then if you look at the data, you know, the, the average age of the successful scalable entrepreneurs is 43. There's this myth, it's the, you know, Stanford dropout. Guess what? That's the rare exception. It's the most successful scale entrepreneurs, I'm not talking small business here, those who scale companies, it's 43 years. Why is that? It's experience. There's some more data sets that show that first-time entrepreneurs, you know, the probability is obviously smaller. So it's not the genius that brings people to kind of learn. This is exactly what you said. The bumps and bruises make you better. And the exciting thing is today, we have the tools and the methodology to support not pure kind of learning and figuring it out. We have both. You need the business anatomy and physiology, and you need to kind of roll up your sleeves and get those bumps and bruises. It's this combination that will turn you into a world-class entrepreneur. Well, I think it's like what you said. It's, it's the pattern recognition, right? The, the first times you're doing this, you're not seeing those patterns unfold. It, it's just like a, a software engineer, you know, a junior, a senior software engineer can perform at, you know, multitudes of speed of a junior because they've tackled those problems before, you know, and yeah. I think that's why we see successful entrepreneurs or for scale companies are generally older 
they've identified the patterns earlier and can can respond to them. So in the end, I think the method still, yeah. you know, is still relevant. And here's an interesting one. So first-time entrepreneurs who are young, they act often, and I don't have the data set on this, so this is like anecdotal, right? But they often fail with their second venture because they don't have that, you know, longer term pattern recognition skill. So they're actually going to believe the patterns they got from one success. So mm -hmm. it's extremely dangerous to be successful because remember that drawing I made? All of a sudden you're going to think, well, I know how the world works. There is no risk and uncertainty. I've done this before. You know, I had a billion dollar exit. I don't need to go back and test. This is mm -hmm. super dangerous, right? Yeah. So it can be when you're successful the first time that you don't realize you just got lucky. And yeah. the second time, you might want to go back to, you know, how it works for everybody else. Yeah, great. Yeah. It's, sorry, go ahead, Dries. No, I, I, because uh, you were briefly mentioning before that, that you also do uh, a lot of support for uh, more established corporates, organizations. And I also see that they more and more get interested in this kind of methodologies and tools. But at the same time, that exactly on the point of doing experiments, they often feel very uncomfortable. And I always like to do in my executive teaching, I just ask a question, how much should an experiment cost? <laughs> and, then, and then these people say numbers like, yeah, 10,000 euros, and it should take three months. And then I'm like, no, that's way too much. That's way too long. <laughs> but apparently that's the mindset they seem to have. What are your experiences in that respect? Well, you're, you're spot on. I'll push it a step further. The first thing they're going to ask is, which agency are we going to hire? To do <laughs> Indeed. That work? Indeed. I mean, imagine, imagine an entrepreneur telling the VC, you know, okay, thanks for the budget. I'm now going to hire an agency <laughs> to run the experiments. Oh, and by the way, it costs a hundred thousand bucks. Like you're never going to find a, a, an investor ever again. So it's spot on what you're saying. And I actually want to kind of just quickly share this. <laughs> so here's, here's the challenge in enterprise. So, in a company that's running, that found its business model beyond startup, you actually have two worlds. You have exploit, running the business, and then you have explore, reinventing. And uncertainty is very different. On the right-hand side, when you run a business, you know the customer, you know the value proposition, know the supply chain, things are predictable. So you can actually plan, and we'll see what that means then for investments. On the left-hand side, you know, the drawing before, we don't know if it's gonna work, and we actually need to admit. And in most corporations, you can't admit that this is a great idea, but I have no clue if it's going to work because there's this myth in corporations still that you can pick ideas. Nobody in the startup world or in the VC community would think they're smart enough to pick ideas. That's why VCs invest in portfolios because they're not a humble breed, right? But they admit they can't pick just the winner. So now that means in terms of investments, now we're spot on to what you said. On the right-hand side, we can make large bets because when you can kind of predict the world, like know the customers, build a new factory, gonna churn out you know, 20,000 more widgets, you analyze and make bets. Analysis and investment is important because you don't wanna be wrong. But on the left-hand side, you have to admit you're gonna be wrong. So you make very small bets and you make many of them. So overall, you might still invest 100K but you're now going to invest in 10 teams or 20 teams. So the distribution changes. So you don't have a return on investment of a project. You're now thinking return on portfolio. So that's the difference, right? As an entrepreneur, data point of one, here you're, you have projects with corporate entrepreneurs. Now let's look at the last one here. When it comes to questions to ask as a leader, well, on the right-hand side, it's going to be, are we on time on budget? You know, are we sticking to the business plan? Business plans are an execution document. Now, unfortunately, companies still ask for business cases and business plans. Now, in innovation, the business plan is actually the enemy. So you need to ask a different question. What did you learn? Should we continue to invest or should we kill the project or retire the project? So everything changes. So that little, you know, anecdote that you mentioned about big budgets to do the first experiment, that, that shows that, that most leaders today, they're still kind of applying exploit 
KPIs and metrics and ways of working to the explore world. That can't be. So now the best corporate leaders, they understand these are two different worlds that need to live in harmony. And I actually believe innovation is the same profession as entrepreneurship with some differences. It's just like one is a knee surgeon and one is a heart surgeon, right? So you can decide which one is which, but it's the same profession. Now in a corporation, you have also the profession of running a company. That's the main difference. And for the, for the entrepreneurs in a company, you're now doing this within an ecosystem. So benefit is you have access to money. You have access to brand. You have access to patents. You have access to customers, ideally, right? Ideally. But here's the downside. Maybe you're blocked from all of that. So there are a lot of blockers. So it's the same profession, but within a different context. And that's what we're trying to do with strategize. We're trying to bring the entrepreneurial mindset into the biggest companies of the world, like MasterCard, Nestle, and so on. We're trying to infuse that so the entrepreneurial spirit can live alongside the execution spirit. Hmm. Hmm. I'm really interested in asking you a question that I think occurs both in the in the corporate entrepreneurial world and in the entrepreneurial world. And you know, I'll I'll steal a quote from uh, the late great Kenny Rogers of no one to hold them, no one to fold them, no one to walk away, no one to run. Right. I mean, especially for entrepreneurs out in the wild, there's so much tied into your venture. There is emotion, there's ego, there is, you know, fear of failure, there's social pressures. And, you know, you're getting these data points and you're looking for patterns, but we all have a habit of holding on for dear life. Right. How do you how would you advise people to address this situation of when to fold them? And do you often see founders, entrepreneurs that are are really trying to hypothesis test, keep looking for more hypotheses rather than closing the doors? So I think there's this myth that you can pivot yourself to success. So some in some cases, yes, again, it's 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 a art and science, and you need to have a vision as an entrepreneur, and you need to stick to that vision. This the steps that are changing. But frankly, if there's no evidence that you can ever produce, you probably at one, at one point want to say, well, is this worth my time and energy? Because there is nothing there. And it could be a timing issue, right? So when people tell me, oh, I had that idea. Well, number one, like everybody has a lot of ideas and ideas are easy. And sometimes it is the timing. So the art is also to say, hey, I tried this actually five years ago. I stopped it because I learned there's nothing there today for this and this reason. I was wrong on the timing. Five years later, you're going to succeed, right? So it's not because an idea didn't work then. It's not going to work tomorrow. So there's all these factors. But I think this, this myth, if I just pivot and pivot and pivot, I'm going to succeed, is really, really dangerous because it's not true. Sometimes you need to stop. Even, and this is really where great entrepreneurs, they will admit that and they will pay back investors. So even funded companies sometimes just say, no, we're calling it a day. We're going to pay back the remaining money to investors. And that's okay. That's okay. And then you work on the next thing because here is the point of view of investors, venture capital. They know things are going to fail. And Steve Blank is a wonderful story where he was on the cover of a magazine the, the day you know, the company went bust. Well, guess what? The same investors invested in Steve Blank again and had a multi-billion dollar exit. Well, why is that? Because investors understand that it's not because you didn't succeed once. You're not going to succeed in another case. Back to the data. This is super important. There's this book on super founders that data shows that second or third time entrepreneurs are more successful even when they failed. So there's this myth that you're gonna have the big success after you know, a small success. That's not even true. The data shows that some of the big successes, they were after smaller failures. So it's more like the duration of how many times somebody tried that brings you to success. So it's extremely important that we teach entrepreneurs and innovators that it's okay to fail. And when there's nothing there, 
is not giving up. It's being smart about where you're putting your time, energy, and your investors' money. This is completely underestimated, and we don't talk about it enough. This yeah. is extremely important. The, I, I wanted to jump in on this one because as you know, as an American living in, in Germany and having built companies on both sides of, of the pond, we I've felt different environments of, you know, the way people perceive failure. And to me, that is almost a precursor, like is, uh, I think Tim Ferriss talks a lot about like afford acceptable losses. Sarah Sarasvati talks a lot about affordable loss principle as well, like really understanding that failure is baked into, into this journey. You know, what are, what's your experience and how to prepare founders, you know, to have that right mindset so they know that they should respond to the signals accordingly rather than being mired in these social and emotional, you know, constraints. And I think the, the first thing we actually need to teach innovators and entrepreneurs is your job is to be humiliated a hundred times a day, right. you know, every week, but you get up until you figured it out. And if, you know, you're humiliated for a very long time, it's not about like giving up. It's about saying, well, frankly, there's nothing there. I'm going to change my focus, my vision. So simply, you know, getting them to learn that, to do that, showing cases, you know, a lot of founders today are very transparent that they didn't succeed the first time. And they talk about this, you know, that as long as you're not doing something criminal, I mean, you know, we took Theranos, that's a different thing. Like that's, that was criminal. But as long as you just really followed a process, you were not wasting money, but you were testing the idea and there was nothing there, you will actually, and this is the key thing to teach, you will actually gain the confidence from investors. Because if there's one thing investors don't want is to invest in teams that have never done it before. So again, back to this kind of, young Stanford drop, dropouts, well, you know what? They're unreliable because they're going to make mistakes that somebody who's a second or third time entrepreneur, even unsuccessful, is not going to make. So why did, you know, Steve Lang's investor invest in Steve again? Because he did lose like dozens of millions. And they're saying, well, you know, you never do that again. And, and to your point about America, I would actually be more narrow, I think, Corporate America is just as risk averse as German or Swiss Swiss uh, corporations. Sure. If you take, and again, I'm not, like, there's good things about Silicon Valley, not, there's a whole debate right now, but in, and here I'm really leaning on my friend Steve again, there's one thing that they call a failed entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. And actually that is now also for Berlin, that is also for London, for Barcelona, for any startup ec ecosystem. This is how you call a failed entrepreneur. Do you know, do you know how you call a failed entrepreneur? Experienced. Experienced, yep. Yeah. So you're never going to do that again. And I can guarantee you, I made mistakes that cost me a ton of money. Like we're talking in the millions. Well, guess what? I'm never going to make that mistake again. And that was not investor money. That was my money, right? So you're not going to make that mistake. That experience is what you're going to give to investors. They know this founder or this founding team is not going to burn my money because they made those expensive, you know, mistakes. Maybe on my wallet, you know, as an investor, probably on somebody else's wallet. So we need to teach this because there are these myths still today, in particular for young entrepreneurs that are not visible out there. And the press is not helping, right? The press continues, yep. you know, like we, we had 30 under 30. Now it's going to be like the 12 under 12. <laughs> 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 and maybe to touch upon experience and your experience because at the beginning you were talking about how you actually started in switzerland uh in information uh, systems and i think of course today and, and you might agree or disagree with that there is quite an exciting time with this generative ai popping up and then if i think about the tools for um developing and testing hypotheses do you see opportunities in terms of generative AI that can help us to kind of leverage or even speed oh, yeah. up this process? Oh, you bet. So I, I we played around, our team played around with this. And today I had a, I had a conversation with a, an innovation leader in a corporation specifically around this. So what's going to happen? I mean, I did a simple, my team worked on it and then I thought, wow, and I did a simple experiment. 
I actually asked, you know, um, how are pharmaceutical companies, ChatGPT, right? How are pharmaceutical companies going to avoid obsolescence? What business models do they need to explore? Bam, 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 right? So it comes up and like, there's nothing surprising there when you have worked with pharmaceutical companies. But here's the thing, that was generated within one to two seconds. So what's gonna happen, because I didn't stop there. And then I asked, okay, how am I going to test these business models? Bam, 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 bam. two seconds, right? So what's gonna happen is the first, whatever, like 20 to 60% of the work is going to be done by ChatGPT, any other kind of similar tool. And then you need experts who can work with that because it's a foundation. A lot of it is gonna be the obvious stuff, but the obvious stuff is gonna go away. So what does this mean for, for white collar professions? The mediocre work where people just do the basics, that's gonna go away. That's, good. that's gone. There's no more money to be earned there. Now, the specialists who know how to work with this stuff that comes up that sounds extremely eloquent, but also has mistakes in it, now you have a foundation. So I'm just going to save, as an innovator entrepreneur, I'm going to save a ton of time. So the very basic work will be done for me by systems, but I have to be really good to be able to work with that stuff. So I think this is huge. And I I'm, I'm, you know, can understand it from my world. No. But this is going to be for any kind of mediocre white collar thing. It's going to happen in banking. It's going to happen everywhere. So it's no. kind of scary because we're going to have an ultra specialization, a small group of people who are going to be paid insane amounts of money. And the middle group is going to go, go away. So this, this kind of gap is going to get bigger. And we're going to see the ultra specialized who know how to deal with this stuff. It's it's uh, crazy times. I was blown away. I was skeptical until I used it myself and then pop. And we're looking at how to build this into the strategizer tools because there's no way around it. There's no way around it. Yeah, ju just as an anecdote, I, I had recently a course on developing novel business models. And normally in the course, it's always difficult for students to do customer interviews because it's time consuming and then eating each out. And I, now I said to them, okay, just use ChatGTP as your customer. Do customer interviews with ChatGTP. And it was amazing the amount of insights they were able to generate from these interviews because ChatGTP was really acting like a regular customer, pointing to pain points, talking about how it solved problems before, why it was not working. So you could actually perfectly simulate a traditional customer interview using ChatGTP, which was and, and, really amazing. And that's interesting, right? Because what do you do with these kinds of tools? You take a lot of data out there and if and you can only work on things that are there, right? So no. like generative AI is not going to work for stuff where there's no data, right? So it's only because people already worked on pharmaceutical business models that ChatGPT could generate that list for me. But what I do think is also interesting is think of it, you're going to do some basic thinking, okay, this is my idea, these are my hypothesis, generate a, an interview script for me, that's going to be reality, right? So whatever idea, you can start doing that. This is the conversation I had with corporate leader today. It's like, Alex, can you do this for me? Well, not tomorrow, but, <laughs> but these are the things that are going to happen. Surveys are going to be generated um, and for, for testing, new business models and value propositions, it's going to me mean speeding up. The thing that I would really, you know, be cautious about, the great ideas are never going to come from generative um, AI. That is human creativity. But is it going to be fewer people who can work with these tools? Because they enhance human creativity. They don't replace human creativity. So in innovation and entrepreneurship, Generative AI is going to enhance human creativity if we use it well. But, you know, I agree that it will never replace human ingenuity and, you know, feeling real pain points of specific problems. But bringing it back to the hypothesis testing side, you know, will it, re will it have the ability to replace you know, engagement on, on a sentiment level, right? And especially when we start looking at GPT-4 mixed with quantum and you've got orders of magnitude of more data points, like, will we actually need to do customer discovery or will we have, you know, the, the collective, you know, in, in one question responded back to us? I think that's where things get really interesting.
Yeah. And I, I love the way you just framed it, right? Because when you do an interview, you can feel, you can see, you can see the kind of the yeah. pupils dilate. I mean, like yeah. now I'm onto something. That kind of human pattern recognition, because we're pretty complex machines that can yeah. do stuff. Like if you have a complete lack of empathy, maybe not, but like the, in, in people who are good at customer interviews, they can see things that a machine won't be able to do for a very long time. Right. But I'd not say never. So you know that today in insurance, there, you know, um, you can have insurance applications online and it's AI, you know, measuring different data points. And based on your facial kind of mimicking, they can detect if you're lying or not for insurances. So I'd be super careful with maybe actually what I just said was wrong because a system can maybe better analyze. So I'm just actually, I took my hypothesis from the beginning, I'm throwing <laughs> it over the thing. No, 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 no. Interviews are going to be better done with the support of, uh, of, uh, of uh, computer systems, but they won't replace them for a long, a long time. I forgot who it was. It was about, yeah, close to a decade. I think it was Mark Cuban may have said that we're moving into a, we're moving into an era where the, uh, the philosophers and the behavioral psychologists are the ones that are going to rule the world. It's the ones that can utilize, understand human behavior and interact with the technology. But yeah, that's, that's the missing element that is hard to replicate, right? It would be nice if it's, you know, the positive side, the light that's going to rule, but we also know that these tools are going to be used by people who will abuse them. So we can only hope that we're going to be able to put a regulation in place to, to manage this. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen before, you know, countries and legislations are even going to understand. So there's it's a bit of a scary period. Um, we've seen, you know, in, in social, what self-regulation of companies actually means. It rarely works, right? So, so uh, governments do have a role. It's not about red tape, but it's about kind of, you know, setting the framing for 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 the playing field. So we stay, you know, more on the positive side. Wow, that is like the epitome of that E.O. Wilson quote, right? Where we're primitive beings with medieval institutions and godlike technology. That is scary. That is scary, right? That is scary, and that's ahead of us, right? It's not far away. <laughs> Nice. So, you know, you've been, you have been talking about and you've contributed to this discourse about the business model canvas now. Gosh, it's, it seems like yesterday, but it's already been what, 13, 14 years. You know, a lot has changed in the, you know, environment, the, the entrepreneurial world and the way we do business and the technology around it. What do you think has kind of changed? Has anything changed your opinions or have, is there any new learnings through the kind of evolution over these 13 years that uh, you look back and say, okay, maybe some things, I need to look at things differently? Oh, every day, right? So so like if, if I'd stop, you know, questioning myself, then I gotta, you know, be a bit careful and maybe go see some people. But so, so, all of the books we like when we write another book, first question is, does the world need another book? And, you know, you got to be very careful to say yes to this because there are a lot of books out there and a lot of business books are written every year. So for, it's always informed by what we see. So when we expand, like some people say, oh, Alex, I know, I know your book. Well, we wrote a couple and that's okay. But Business Model Canvas is one tool and it does one job. It shapes your, you know, it, it allows you to, Capture this idea of a business and put it in a business model canvas. Well, guess what? We needed another tool for how products and services create value. That's the value proposition canvas. Does one replace the other? No, it's two tools. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, that whole thing merged with customer development and lean startups. So it's, you know, there's so many things you need to get right when you're exploring a business idea as an entrepreneur or as an innovator. You got, we figure out one solution. Well, how can we make this better? So until we can say, this is it, we've done it. It's now like accounting, like everything's clear, still a little <laughs> bit of way to go. But I do think the evolution over the last two decades of this has been phenomenal. And I do believe people, you know, who today say, well, you know, I figured it out. And, and they're talking about stuff that was good three years ago. This field is still moving very fast. Again, one thing is 
people say, yeah, yeah, we do, we do testing. Like, okay, and then I ask, well, okay, well, how do you do it? Oh, we do MVP. Okay, well, great. That's very basic, right? So are you able, this is the question I ask, you know, corporate innovators now, are you able to measure risk and uncertainty and make evidence-based investment in your portfolio in a very structured way? And most of them, you know, they say, yeah, we ask for a hundred interviews to get through the next, next phase. And that's like stone age, right? So today with the different types of evidence, we know how to quantify risk and we know how to compare that, you know, to the kind of metrics we have in execution. If we're not working towards that profession, we can't be taken seriously as, you know, I'd say as people who, you know, teach entrepreneurship and innovation, we need to move towards that profession. And it's not today yet accepted as a profession. So there's still a bit of way to go, but the methods are getting very professional, right? So what worked three years ago, five years ago, what was state of the art today is the stone age. So this is changing still all the time. What we're trying to do with computer systems is like we're figuring out stuff by doing it in our own company. We're learning, learning, learning every day. So, and we talked about, you know, chat GPT, how, how we can use that. This is going to change a lot more. So it's not finished until it's finished. A lot of things changed. I don't think a lot of things that we figured out, I'm talking about, you know, Eric Reese, Steve Blank, Pinier, myself, everybody in this community. I don't think we get we got a lot of things wrong. I just think there's more things to add. It's just like, you don't, as a surgeon, you don't operate with a Swiss army knife. <laughs> I'd be scared if my surgeon shows up with a Swiss army knife. Like that was 10 years ago. Today, we need, you know, entrepreneurship and innovation scalpels. And you have the whole kind of operating toolbox to do that. This is, this is where we're moving towards today. So I don't think we got a lot of it wrong. I think, you know, we now know that it's a lot of different tools and methods together that turn this into a profession. I have to ask you about this. This is my nerdy futurist self, so forgive me. Um, but uh, as somebody that you know builds tools and methods, and, and and what you've created is pretty astounding. And hearing that you know the future is bringing in more on tools and methods, I was working out today listening to Dr. Peter Atia, and he was talking about the evolution of health and fitness and how we have different tools and protocols, right? And they got more and more sophisticated. And where does this culminate? And we're now getting to health and fitness mimetics, literally the exercise pill where you take the pill and essentially it will make you fit. <laughs> we're not there yet, but we're moving in that direction. As I'll we take that pill. <laughs> I need that pill. Damn right. Damn right. But as as we talk about, you know, all of these amazing innovations and technologies coming in, like, do you see a a kind of point of of unity where all of these tools and methods can come together and there is the one-stop shop? Like, here's the problem I want to solve. I'm gonna, you know, collectively uh reach out to the world and have everything kind of harmonized and integrated for me? It's the singularity of the, si the singularity. <laughs> that's the word I was thinking of. That's right. Yeah. So, so at the end of the day, you know, best tools are going to be the tools that people use, right? So, and, and I think my philosophy around business tools, and I'm talking paper-based tools like the business small canvas or instantiations of those paper-based or concepts, in with computer-aided design and, and systems, like we're trying to build them at Strategizer, you have UX and UI, right? So when we designed the business model canvas ages ago, same for value proposition canvas, we focused on the user interface. How did we lay that out? It's not about filling in the boxes because they're related, right? It's the nine elements together that make a business model. And then the user experience. Can people use this fast without explanations? So that's the first thing. I think we have too many tools out there. Now there's, you know, a, a canvas for everything. And generally, this is the thing that I see sometimes when people are not very sophisticated in tool design, they just put, you know, business tool design, they put a couple of boxes and arrows together and they call it a tool. And you have 25 boxes that answer every single thing in the universe. It's unusable, right? And this is not to make fun of people, but it, nobody's going to be able to use that. So what we need to realize is 
the simplicity of specific tools doing one thing and then combining them with other tools doing one thing is going to be extremely powerful. And at the end of the day, users are going to vote. It's users who are going to use that. Now, we tried to. When there's no tool, we make one. When there's one that exists, we didn't reinvent jobs to be done. We use it, right? It works. We didn't reinvent customer development. It works. We built on top of that. There was no metric system. So we did that. Nobody has come up with a testing library. So we wrote business, you know, testing business ideas. So I think that's what we're going to see. And that's what I envision is that, you know, people will try to make the best tools and people will vote for the best tools and then we bring them together. I think that's the kind of thing, you know, that, that we need to see. And maybe the collaboration between the thinkers is not always, not always good because sometimes people see each other as competitors. <laughs> well, guess what? The users are going to vote. It's, like, it's just like in other, any other domain, the users are going to decide. Awesome. Well, Alex, I think that ties a bow on on our conversation about the future, although I could do this for hours, picking your brain on where do we go from here. Um, but we like to wrap up our episodes with kind of three quick rapid fire questions. One is hard, two are easy, but less enjoyable. Um, so I'm gonna do that real quick. The first one, maybe the slightly harder one is, you know, you've been in this world for a long time. You've seen a lot of founders, you've worked with a lot of corporates and other institutions tested your your hypotheses and your tools and your models what advice would you give your younger self that you have learned on this journey so far um i'd say well first very simple say hire a breakthrough coach so what changed my life and i did that at 40 was hiring a breakthrough coach in my case it's shani ospina she changed you know the way I look at myself, how I improve every day, how I manage business, and how I am as a person. I should have done that way earlier because I would have become a better human earlier. That's never too late. But you know, um, I did that um, also with my kids. I, you know, we did some entrepreneurship projects. We have a Biz for Kids comic that we put out. But I also worked with my coach, you know, and 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 uh, gave my kids access to that. So I think coaching is completely underestimated. We think of coaching as, oh, you're broken, you need coaching. No, you want to get better? Well, guess what? Have you ever seen a sports star not having a coach? Right. Like, really? So, so we need to see that as something that enhances you. That's my number one that I would put, uh, put on top. I should have made that higher faster. The one I did faster is the PA, personal assistant. I think people see it as a cost it actually liberates your time. So I'd see that as well. Like founders have no money for nothing, but you know what? A personal assistant is actually an investment that you should make fast because your time is valuable. If you're booking your trips. Well, okay, if you can't afford that, fine. But the moment you can afford that, don't book those trips. Right, great point. Time and perspective, they're things that money can't buy, you know, worth their weight in gold. All right. Two, two perhaps more banal questions, but to give a little bit of insight into Alex the human. What, uh, you know, we can learn so much from what people read. I have no doubt in my mind, you are an active and voracious reader uh, as well as author. What book is on your bedside table? What would you like to recommend right now? So I just gave a colleague of mine a book called The Courage to be Disliked. And the kind of the title, you know, is interesting, right? But it's, it's around, you know, focus on yourself and let others focus on their decisions, right? Sometimes we want people to behave in a certain way. I want my kids to behave in a certain way. No, let them make their mistakes and let them make their decisions, right? It's, you know, so the courage to be, be disliked is one I put really, really um, at the top. It's a pretty, pretty phenomenal book. Amazing. And... What's cycling on your playlist? That can be music, that can be podcasts. Uh, when, you, when you're tuning out the world and, and listening, what are you listening to? So um, I listen to a lot of books on, on Audible when I do ski touring or when I go running, but there are two things, like one podcast that I listen to almost religiously is 20 Minute VC by Harry Stebbings. Mm -hmm. I think every entrepreneur and VC should listen to that. It's just really, it's, it's very dense, 
it's value per minute, right? I like that because I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> so that one is, is really phenomenal. And then I just listen to a lot of hip hop actually. And my children obviously keep me up to date. Otherwise I just listen to old school, you know, Tupac and so, but my, my kids uh, keep my playlist and hip hop up to date. So that's the second kind of thing that's <laughs> that I'm listening. Awesome. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. I felt like we could do this for, for another hour. Um, so much, uh, great nuggets of wisdom and, uh, really great to, to finally meet you and and hear it from the uh, the man himself. Uh, we really appreciate having you. Well, thanks for having me. Awesome conversation. And yeah, we should, we should do more of these, right? <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a good Thank one. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, folks, that was Alex Osterwalder, entrepreneur, founder of Strategizer, visiting professor at IMD Business School, author, public speaker, and father of the famed Business Model Canvas. Stay tuned for our next episode, going live every other Wednesday. And if you enjoyed this one, be sure to like, subscribe, share, and comment on your favorite podcast streaming service. This next to smile.